Just a quick note. This is part two of a two-part series, both of which discuss death and suicide. If you know someone who's feeling depressed or you need to talk to someone, you can always call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. More info in the show notes. Okay, on to the show. Welcome to part two of our two-part series on the nutshell studies of unexplained death. In part one, we visited the 18 little dioramas of death in the Baltimore Medical Examiner's Office. They're the creations of Francis Glesner Lee, and perfect little models of the many ways that a person's life can end unexpectedly. In this episode, we're going to walk down the hall to another diorama of death. Except this one is on a very different scale. And did she say to you, do you want to be a dead body? Yeah, basically. She was like, I have this really cool opportunity for you. (laughs) It's life-size. Well, it's death-size. Let's call it full-scale. And in place of a three-inch doll is me. It goes from being super goofy fun to being like, oh, yeah, no, this is about, like, training people to go into people's homes where someone they loved has just killed themselves. I'm Dylan Thuris, and this is Atlas Obscura. And today, we're going into the Scarpetta House, sometimes called the most violent room in Baltimore. It's an immersive classroom for students of death scene investigation. I play dead and learn quite a bit about this fascinating field of study. That's after this. this is more like for that kind of stuff it, it doesn't have to be so precise because you're like oh, no, oh I'm dead all kinds of blood and it doesn't matter and as you see I've just got these big squirt bottles yeah. and various stages of blood and depending on how close the gunshot wounds are I may have to put some of that on there what is that um uh, black powder okay so, so it's like if I if I, you actually shot yourself here, that's Scott Goldstein he's a captain in the Pikesville volunteer fire company just north of Baltimore but he's also a makeup artist for the medical examiner's office and while we're talking, he's busy sponging a layer of red makeup onto my legs. All right. So it's always going to be darker right where their skin touches the ground. Then as it comes up, it starts to fade because everything, if you think about it, all the blood's just going to start settling towards the bottom. Wherever it meets the ground... I'm here today with a group of volunteers. And after we're all in our scene-appropriate makeup, we'll spend the day pretending to be victims inside the Scarpetta house. So there's like a front porch, there's a front door, there's a swing set outside. Uh, there is a like a little living room scene with a couch and a television. Uh, you walk in and there's it was everything you'd expect in like a small apartment. It's like yeah, a, it's like yeah. a, it's like a TV set, but instead it gets filled with with uh, dead people, fake dead people. But you know, though it wasn't made by Francis Glesner Lee. The Scarpetta House serves much the same purpose as her nutshell studies of unexplained death. It's all about training death investigators how to examine and record death scenes. The house gets its name from Kay Scarpetta, the fictional medical examiner and heroine of the novels of mystery writer Patricia Cornwall, all 24 of them. Cornwall worked closely with the Baltimore Medical Examiner's Office on research for her books. And in return, she donated the funds to build this, a full-scale house of death. It's a nutshell made enormous. So 
we will be playing. I will be playing one of four victims of um, uh, suicide victims, and the idea is that the the people training for their examiner's license are going to look at us, and this is going to be used to to teach them how to determine uh, cause of death. Say hello to your victims back there. Thank you, victims. Thank you. Guys. Uh, <laughs> the rules of engagement are. As I get set up and settle into my scene, the reality sets in. It goes from being super goofy fun to being like, oh yeah, no, this is about like training people to go into people's homes where someone they loved has just killed themselves. And like, that's actually pretty intense. So now I've got all four corners. All right. So now you want to visualize what kind of hanging do we have here? Okay, so it's a... Partial, because he's on the ground. Okay, but was he partial to begin with? How much slack do you have in that room? I have a lot of slack. This is what happens inside the Scarpetta house. Unglamorous procedural work, often just correctly documenting the scene. No elaborate cover-ups, no serial killers, just the accidents, suicides, heart attacks, and other scenes that make up the work of a death examiner. And it's absolutely remarkable. All right, so now I'm going to go ahead. I took a picture of that. Mm-hmm. Does anything like this Scarpetta house exist anywhere else? Is that an unusual thing to have a kind of full-scale, uh, you know, staging set? Yes. Uh, near as I know, we're the only forensic medical center that has something like that. That's Bruce Goldfarb from the Baltimore Medical Examiner's Office. We heard from him in the first episode all about the nutshell studies of unexplained death. And what he told us was that while the nutshells and the Scarpetta House are unique, what really makes the Baltimore Medical Examiner's Office notable is that it has this kind of training going on at all. In America, what happens when you die unexpectedly has a lot to do with where you die. America essentially has two death investigation systems, the medical examiner system and coroners. About half the country is under the medical examiner system, where when you die unexpectedly, someone trained in death investigation, a physician or often a forensic pathologist, will help determine the cause of death, say blunt force head trauma, and then the manner of death, natural, accident, suicide, or homicide. But in about 50% of the country, especially in rural counties and Midwestern and Southern states, they still use the coroner system. Coroners are elected or appointed And in a number of states, there's no requirement that they're trained at all. So if I die in a mysterious way, some random person just shows up and decides what, like, that's how it works? Yes. (laughs) To be a licensed barber to cut hair in Missouri, you have to have 1,500 hours of training and pass a test. To sign death certificates, you get more votes. That's it. You're good to go. It seems like this this system is rife for corruption and manipulation. Like, have there been problems with that? Oh, yes. All over the place. Yeah. Say, for example, someone dies in police custody and the coroner shows up. Well, if the coroner is also the sheriff, which is true in quite a number of places, they have a fairly strong incentive to rule the manner of death as accidental. And that's exactly what happened in New Orleans, where there were people who were dying in uh, in jail um, and dying, uh, you know, clearly from 
homicides and they're called accidental and these sorts of things and and that went on for years and years and years fbi finally came in arrested a whole bunch of police officers and prison guards but the guy who signed the death certificates the coroner was never charged with anything he was re-elected year after year after year when francis glesner lee began her work in legal medicine this is part of what she was trying to answer It was why she gave the endowments, why she built the nutshells, why she attended detective training sessions until nearly the day she died. They were all in the service of a simple idea. Knowing what actually killed someone, it matters. Cause of death, manner of death. It matters not just for justice for the dead and not just to hold power accountable, but because all of us living folks depend on it. Accurate death examinations can save lives. Sometimes people will dismiss forensic pathology and say, oh, wouldn't you want to work on living people? Or, you know, don't you miss saving lives? This is Dr. Judy Melanick. She's a forensic pathologist based in New Zealand. And when I get that question, it indicates to me how little the questioner knows about forensic pathology. Every forensic pathologist who has identified that a death was due to a homicide and a perpetrator was put in jail and based on their testimony has saved lives. Dr. Melanick has investigated hundreds of deaths, and she knows firsthand how important the work can be. Any pathologist who has identified a carbon monoxide death due to uh, a damaged heater, for instance, has saved other lives. And it's really an important job. You need to have trained practitioners to be able to recognize those hazards out in the field. So it's not just the pathologist, it's also the police officer or death scene investigator who's going out to the scene. They need to be trained. It's not always as simple as just coroners versus medical examiners. In 2013 in North Carolina, a medical examiner failed to alert the authorities that he had discovered an elderly couple had been killed by carbon monoxide in their hotel room. A week later, an 11-year-old and his mother were poisoned in the very same room, killing the 11-year-old. There are good coroners and bad medical examiners. And each state has a different set of standards for either. What there isn't is any kind of national standard for death examination. It's important because so much rests on it. If you don't have a death scene investigation that's proper, uh, criminals go free, (laughs) and potential public health hazards are still out there to affect other people. A well-functioning death investigation system is like a country's immune system. It's their first alert of a new street drug or an emerging pandemic. We came to New Zealand because my office uh, at uh, the Alameda County Sheriff Coroner's office wasn't taking COVID-19 seriously enough for me. Over 70 years ago, Frances Glesner Lee, a wealthy socialite and grandmother in her 50s, began working on helping create and build the field of death investigation. Her vision was both expansive and simple to teach proper death investigation to everyone involved in the process, to create a standard. I would like to see the federal government refocus its efforts on getting funding for improving forensic sciences in the underserved areas, in the rural areas, in the areas that are served by coroners and sheriff's deputies that don't have the level of training that you may get in a place like the Maryland office. Okay, now I'm going to check for lividity. Okay. 
which will have some mobility in the lower extremities and the hands. Back in the Scarpetta house, I'm photographed and poked and prodded. I'm rolled over to look for rigor mortis. In this case, rigor has passed. Okay. But what do you notice on, on the legs and the arms? It was kind of glorious. For that one day, I got to play dead, but I also got to play a tiny part in Francis Glesner Lee's vision of the world. So he's starting, he's starting to, to decode. In many ways, Francis Glesner Lee has been wildly successful. You can find her influence in television, in movies, and podcasts. And the nutshells continue to do their work as part of a seminar training nearly 100 detectives every year. And that the Baltimore Medical Examiner's Office is home to both the incredible nutshell studies of unexplained death and the Scarpetta House make it a truly unique place in the world. But it's showing what death investigation training can look like that makes it essential. Essential to spotting the carbon monoxide leak, to finding the new street drug, to seeing the new virus emerge, is central to all of us who are, at least for the moment, still counting ourselves among the living. I recommend just not touching anything to your, know you're done with your photos. It's kind of a look like situation. It is, deliberately. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. The production team includes... Doug Baldinger. Chris Naka. Camille Stanley. Willis Ryder Arnold. Sarah Wyman. Manolo Morales. Tracy Samuelson. Peter Clowney. Our technical director is... Casey Holford. And this episode was sound designed by... John Delore. I'm Dylan Thuris, wishing you all the wonder in the world. See you tomorrow. Witness Docs from Stitcher. Hi, everybody. This is Dylan, and I have a strange offer to make you. I want to give you a pair of mathematically efficient cookie cutters. You know how when you're making cookies and you have a shape and then you end up with like a bunch of extra dough and you got to smush it together and recut it out and you're always a little bit extra? Not with these. Mathematically efficient cookie cutters fit together to make a perfect, never-ending tiling system. I want you to own these. And the way to get them is with pre-ordering our new book coming out called Gastro Obscura, A Food Adventurer's Guide. And with every pre-order, you can get yourselves a pair of these incredible mathematically efficient cookie cutters. And also you get the book, which takes you all over the world, telling you the most incredible food stories uh, on every continent. And you learn about miracle berries in Africa, which change your taste buds. You learn about the incredible monastery in the UK, making the the meat of the gods. These are the kinds of things that we uh, share in the book. So hopefully you're interested in both of these things. I would love for you to actually send me pictures of the cookies you make with your mathematically efficient cookie cutters.